Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Please do pray for my physical health. I don't feel sick, but I sound sick. And my nose hasn't gotten a memo from the rest of my body that we want to be better now. And so something's really wrong with my sinuses. Would you just pray that God would dry up all that stuff? I don't want to be too graphic, but I just don't want to feel like this and sound like this anymore. So would you pray for that? I'd I'd be grateful. Well, we're going to start each year. We're going to try to do something in January of each year moving forward where we revisit the things that are at the foundation of who we want to be as a church so that we don't lose our way in the midst of all the different messages you'll hear. We want the same basic message to lay the foundation year after year. And so last week, we talked about something that's really important to our church culture, and that is the idea of a commitment to taking next steps in our lives to not looking backwards and being trapped in the past, um, not being completely mired in the present, but knowing that what God calls us to is to keep taking our very next tangible step forward in a deeper relationship with him and with other people. And so this idea of staying on the move, of taking next steps, is really foundational to how we understand the Christian life. We also have three other things that are really important to us in that regard. Uh, They speak to where you take those next steps. Because remember what we said was you can keep taking next steps, but if they're aimed in the wrong direction, you just keep getting more and more lost the further and further along you get. So just moving isn't enough. You want to keep moving in the right direction. And so we've got three directions that we think we should be moving all the time. Three key relationships in each one of our lives that need to experience regular forward movement. And the first of those is reaching up vertically to our relationship with God. The second of those relationships is reaching across to our fellow Christians in our church family and in the broader kingdom. And third is reaching out to the world around us. That's a very important relationship for us to, to nourish. And so we want to pay attention to all three of these. This Sunday, today, I want to talk about reaching up to God. And the the text I want to draw from is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. And the title of the message is, Seek and You Shall Find. Seek and You Shall Find. So here's the word of God from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. After you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. 
But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. You know, from the very earliest recorded human history, scientists and scholars have discovered evidence that as long as mankind has been around, he has had some form of religion. There seems to be this irrepressible compulsion in the human heart to reach up to something divine or supernatural, something that we clearly sense is bigger, more powerful than us, and something we also sense is not immediately visible to us, something or someone invisible who holds power in their hands that we don't have. And every culture, every society that has ever existed has fostered some form of religion of one kind or another. Now, I've been thinking, why is that the case? Why is there such a universal drive in us to worship or to reach after something supernatural and greater and divine? When there is so much stuff to occupy us, so many things to concern us right here in front of us in the world of flesh and blood. Doesn't it it just kind of boggle your mind that every race, every culture, every society has always reached for this as if it is something endemic to the human spirit. Now, how many of you would agree life itself is pretty complicated already? There's a lot to worry about, a lot to weigh us down, a lot to think about. And so why then do we add on top of all that another layer that concerns us and consumes us? Well, if you look at the way that early religions and in fact even religion today is driven forward, So many religious practices and ceremonies center around these big life events. Things like death. Every every, um, culture has some religion that touches on this idea of death. There's a ritual by which we lay to rest those who have stopped breathing. Now, why is that the case? Why why don't we just simply put them on up? And this this was done in some cases. They would just make a hole, put them away, not even say a word. But even the most irreligious person knows that when you put someone in the ground, you you stand there, you feel this internal drive to say something. You have this unquenchable hope that maybe there is something on the other side of this curtain of death that's waiting for us, a second life or another existence. Many other religious practices center around marking things like birth or fertility. You know, so many early ancient religions had rituals trying to get women to become fertile so that they could conceive and have children. There's a lot of rituals religiously about sickness and healing. And you see it in in signs all over archaeology that people were consumed with this idea of how to get well when they were sick. And another very common religious practice centered around the harvest time. When you put seeds into the ground, and this isn't about selling it at the market. It's about eating what comes out of the ground just to live. Subsistence farming was the economy for so many years. And so when you have a crop coming, it is of absolute survival importance 
that the powers that be would make a good crop come up so that you would have enough to eat for your family and maybe have something left over to sell or trade with others. Now, do you see a pattern there? Wherever you see religious ritual or religious practice, this irrepressible drive to reach up to some divine being, they center around these major life events that remind us very starkly of our human limitations and frailty. At the end of the day, I think most religion is driven by the realization that I can't control some of the things that are the most important to me. If you could have your way, how many of you would be young, healthy, and vibrant and live to be 800 years old? How many of you would like that? Just be honest. I'm talking about young, like, you know, fit, healthy, sharp mind. How many of you like to live to be 800? Yeah, I think most of us, if we could, we would say we don't want to die. We don't welcome death so much. Life is pretty good. How many of you think that it's a good thing? to reproduce, to bring children into the world, to love them, to raise them up, nurture them, see them become healthy men and women. How many of you guys think that's a good thing? And we certainly like to get better. We don't welcome sickness. We don't see it as a welcome or good thing. We want to be able to see a good crop, a return on our labor. All of these things are things we want, we universally desire, but in the end, we are actually pretty powerless to control these things, aren't we? As much as you may want to conceive a child, it is entirely in the hands of God whether you are able to do that or not. As much as you want to be well, to thrive, if, if God has called you to be sick, you're sick. There's, for all the medicine in the world, there are some illnesses we cannot fix with modern medicine. And so again and again, we butt up against these very, very hard boundaries that remind us We can't control nearly as much as we think we can. And I think that is what ultimately drives human beings to reach after somebody who is greater than us. Because in those moments of stark honesty, we have to admit, look, I am not at the top of the chain in this universe. And there are things that weigh on my heart. And I just have this instinctive sense that someone other than me holds the power in his hands. Now, that's part of the reason. The other theological truth is God himself made the human spirit to worship. He made the human heart with, a, with an unsuppressible uh, compulsion to worship because he made us for himself. And that's why, if you've ever watched Justin Bieber's movie, um, Jeannie was watching that last night. I was looking over her shoulder aghast. And you see in the faces of these 12-year-old girls not being fans, not appreciating. It's worship. It is almost apoplectic. They don't know what to do with them. You know, this kind of like, it's ecstatic expression. God has made the human heart with a, a capacity to experience that. And it must be aimed at something. And so that's another reason why we have religion and faith in every civilization, every culture. At the heart of religion, I think, in a practical sense, is this realization that I can't control the things that matter most to me, but I desperately want to regain control, and so I appeal to a God who has power that he might restore control, balance, wellness to my life, because without that help, I wonder if I'm going to achieve that. Now, keeping that in mind, looking at Moses' words to the Israelite nation, we learn a couple things 
about the nature of worship. And the first thing we learn is the danger of the good life. It's a pretty nice, nice house, huh? You can tell us it's somewhere warm because there's palm trees in the front yard. Or the back. I don't know if that's the front or the back of the house. There's a danger that is inherent in the good life. Now, don't zone out and go, here goes a preacher again, poo-pooing money, and, oh, the devil's in wealth. And I, that's, not, that's really never been my message, so give me a little credit. That's not where I'm going necessarily. But listen, we've got to be very brutally honest about something. There is somewhere in the lining of the good life an inherent danger to the soul. And here's how I believe it works. The timing of Moses' words to the Israelites is really interesting. He gives this very dire warning, full of prophecy about how they will be wandering away from God and then how they will not live long. Not many of them will survive. They will be scattered to the nations. It's a very unpleasant bit of prediction about the future. But the timing is very interesting because he's giving them this speech just before they enter the promised land. Now think about this. This has been the dream for 40 years while they've wandered around in the desert eating junk, stuff that falls out of the sky. They're they're sleeping in tents. It is like camping out for an entire two generations. I mean, it is not a pleasant life. And all along, their fathers and forefathers were telling them these amazing stories that the reason we're trudging around in this wilderness desert is because God has promised us that one day... We're all going to cross the boundaries into a place called the promised land, a place flowing with milk and honey. I don't know if that sounds all that appealing to you if you're lactose intolerant and you don't like honey. Then land flowing with milk and honey is not exactly inviting. But the idea is this is everything that you didn't have before. It is comfort, peace, safety, and security that you never knew in your wilderness wanderings. And one day, if you're patient and you persevere, you will have that life. That was the promise that kept these people going while an entire generation died in the desert. And now here they were, the second generation of slaves who had fled from Egypt. They're just about to enter, get the payoff on the promise. Don't you think a good leader would use that occasion to pump them up a little? Hey guys, we're at the end of the long journey. 40 long years You've held on to the promise. You've been faithful. You've stuck it out. And we're about to go in there. Aren't you so happy? Isn't God so good? Isn't it funny that that's the way we'd expect a leader to talk? But here's Moses. You're going to screw up when you get in there. You're going to go there and you're going to forget God. And then every bad thing's going to happen to you. And when you're in distress, you'll come back to God. You'll see. That's what's going to happen. You're going to make idols for yourselves out of wood and stone You're going to commit spiritual adultery. You're going to stab God in the back after all he's done for you. That's not exactly leadership 101 material. John Maxwell would probably criticize that kind of a speech at this time. Why then is God inspiring Moses at this very upbeat moment in their history to warn them about their future rebellion spiritually? See, I think life and the human heart often work very opposite to the way we expect them to work. You think that in the good times, your heart's going to get better. That because everything's going well, you're naturally going to turn to God, depend on God, be humble before God even more and more. And for some people, that is in fact the way it does work. 
But I think for the vast majority of people I've known and for my own heart, it is somewhere in the good times that rather than remembering God, I forget God. I drift from him. I think that speaks to it, indicts the core motivation of human religion, is that what I really want is not God or some relationship with the divine. What I really want is control back in my life. What I really want is not a good God. What I really want is a good life. And so when I get it, built into that is a lining full of danger for the human soul because in that good life, we are sorely tempted to forget about God. After all, when you want for nothing, you often find you don't even want God. Why would you desperately turn to a God when everything you ask him for is already available at arm's reach? That's why I believe that the times we need most to be careful and alert is not when we're struggling. I rarely have to tell a suffering person to pray. Okay? I just don't have to, hey, have you prayed? (laughs) That's all I'm doing. What else do I have? I pray, 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 pray all day. Morning and night I pray because I'm in pain. Pain drives us towards God. You'd be amazed how comfort drives us away from God. The wise person will understand this and their alert will be up more in the good life than in the times of trial. You'll notice that marriage, parenting, friendship, co-work relationships all seem to coast and even fade a little bit in intensity and value in the times of plenty and when you're flush with everything. It's so often in times of struggle that people make a turning point and they either draw nearer or they end it completely. They're not neutral. They're not passive about anything under fire. And so there is, and that's the first observation, is there seems to be some inherent danger to our souls in the good life. Be aware of that. The second thing I learned from this passage is that there's trouble with idols. Those are ancient Sumerian idols, I believe. It's hard to believe that people would set something like that up on their table and actually worship it as though it had divine being and power. I guess that's why they were simple back then. But, you know, I think that God looks at our idols today and probably feels the same sense of folly in it all. He warns them, after you've been there a while in this good land. And that's an interesting little thing that he adds in there. It's not going to be right away. When you first walk in, it'll be like, you know, like the first day you buy your new dream house and you, you're walking through and you're going, God, thank you. I can't believe that's my living room and that's my great room and that's my fireplace and that's my dogwood tree in the backyard. And you're, you're so full of wonder and thanks initially, aren't you? Didn't you walk around your, the place, those of you who've bought a house, you walked around your house the first day and you're like, we are so lucky. I can't believe this is my place. But then probably three years later, you're like, our place is a dump. It sucks. It's so small. Oh, look at the carpet and the dog pee there. I, I despise my house. I just want another house. It's funny how in the beginning, everything is shiny and new. Everything is, oh, thank you for this person you've given me to share my life with. Thank you for this car. Thank, but it fades as you're there for a while and becomes comfortable and familiar. What almost inevitably happens to the human heart is that we grow bored with the things we once got and we become obsessed with the things we ain't got yet. 
And in the process, the God to whom you were once so grateful and dependent is now the God who started ignoring you, has forgotten about your new needs. He's the God who's conspicuously absent when I want him now. And so as a result, we will drift from God very often in prolonged comfort. Now, here's the thing. We will eventually come back, but it's not a natural thing for people to return to the Lord. It's not the kind of thing people do by instinct. We have to be led into that. And so what he says is the more likely replacement for God in your life will be some idol. You will feel the growing need for something because life won't be peaceful and new and exciting and comfortable forever. At some point, you will once again come upon a need which you cannot control. And you will have this instinctive calling up to divinity. But rather than humble yourself and go back to God, what most people will do is they'll create something else, something into which they sink their hopes, and they will pin everything on that and say, I give you power. When a person makes an idol, a carving, a figurine, and they set it on the mantle of their fireplace and worship it, they're not really worshiping a piece of wood. They're worshiping themselves. They're worshiping the one who made that and imbued it with power and said, I will pin all of my hopes on you. What they're really saying is I'm going to roll the dice and count on my hard work and good fortune and a little bit of superstitious luck. That's what they're saying. The Bible is merciless in making fun of those who carve little idols and worship them. In fact, this is one of the places in scripture where I think God is the most sarcastic and funny. There are four key passages in which God really pokes fun at those. I, I wish I, could, I had time to read all of them for you. But in Isaiah, there's a hilarious one, Isaiah 44, where he's talking about a skilled carpenter who goes into the woods, into a place where he's allowed these trees to grow up very tall, and he chops one down, and then he gets tired, and he gets cold, and he takes half the tree, and he burns it to make a fire, and he warms himself, and he cooks his lunch over the half the tree, With the other half of the tree, he carves an idol and says, you are my God, you can save me. And he bows to worship it. He says, how stupid is that? You burn half the wood to cook your lunch and stay warm. And you make a God out of the other half of the tree. And what God's spirit says through through Isaiah is, pause for a minute and think how stupid that is. How stupid it is to invest all of your trust in something you have made. Here's what Jeremiah says. This is what the Lord says. Do not act like other nations who try to read their future in the stars. All of you who read your horoscopes and astrology secretly in the paper, behold. Do not be afraid of their predictions, even though other nations are terrified by them. Their ways are futile and foolish. They cut down a tree and carve an idol. They decorate it with gold and silver and then fasten it securely with hammer and nails so it won't fall over. My God just keeps wobbling, so I've got to nail him to the fire. There stands their God like a helpless scarecrow in a garden. It cannot speak and it needs to be carried because it cannot walk. Do not be afraid of such gods for they can neither harm you nor do you any good. Here's a basic message I'm trying to get across. 
When you drift far from God, you also begin drifting far from reason and far from wisdom. And when a person is far from God and you listen to their logic, it is laughable. They don't see it, but a person who is nearer to God hears them. They go, are you serious? Is that really work? You really think that is going to work? That makes sense to you? Because what there was a time in your life where that would have sounded like lunacy, but now you're saying, money can make me happy. If only I could just get this, I would be on top of the world. And, and it just doesn't make any sense. It's an experiment that has proven a failure again and again through human history, and yet you're banking everything on it. And the ones who love you hear you, and they say, how can you actually believe that? And that is because as a person drifts from God, they drift from their right senses. And they begin to look at things that they have made and think that that thing they've created deserves their full trust and hope and faith. Here's what God says about that. If you become corrupt and make any kind of idol, here's what God says about it. That's the same as doing evil in God's eyes, and it will provoke him rightly to anger. And why is that so? Because when God has revealed himself to you, and you have acknowledged who he is and entered into covenant with him, when you wander, that is not just a moral failure, it is a relational betrayal. It's a very personal thing for God when we stray towards idols. Because God has entered a promise which he intends for the rest of eternity to guard and keep for our sakes and for his sake. If you want to capture the feeling of what God feels when he sees your heart wander from him, think about the pain. Many of us have known somebody who's in a relationship or a marriage where their partner has strayed and wandered and cheated. I just reconnected with an old friend after six years and heard the heartbreaking story of repeated infidelity on the part of his wife and how their lives came crashing to the ground because of this. And as I listened, I could feel the weight of his heart. What it feels like when you enter a relationship every bit with the intention of honoring that promise till death do us part. I will give my very best. And as you see the other person, forget that devalue it, step on it, rub it into the ground, just walk away. That pain, that hurt, that anger is something, a small portion of what God feels when the ones he has died to love wander away from him. That's what it means when it says our God is a jealous God. And the trouble with idols is that at the moment of seduction, they will hold out promises that they will never be able to deliver on. That's the thing about an idol. It always overpromises and underdelivers. It just convinces you that if you get it, if you have it, if you keep it, everything will be better and you will be truly fulfilled. But it does not have the power to supply that. By very definition, it cannot. I think throughout Scripture, God calls what they did Spiritual adultery, whenever Israel wandered from him, he called it adultery. Look at, look at how starkly he says it through Jeremiah. Israel treated it all so lightly. She thought nothing of committing adultery by worshiping idols made of wood and stone. So now the land has been greatly defiled. 
in more traditional translations, the first phrase says, she took her whoredom casually, lightly. Israel acted like a whore and thought it was no big deal. Israel behaved like a woman who looks at her husband and says, so I'm sleeping with other guys, what's the big deal? What? Why are you so worked up about it? And the husband says, how could I not be? Do you not see that this is not a casual thing? And the trouble with idols is the same thing in the trouble with adultery. When a person is married and they stray from their spouse for whatever twisted needs or self-pity they perceive that says, I can't be happier, and they begin to look out and they say, oh, that person, they are everything my husband or my wife is not. And if I could be with them, then I'd have everything I want in my heart. Here's the problem with that. A person who has so little regard for your present marriage vows cannot possibly guard their vows to you. This is not a person who will deliver on the promise because they have to shatter one promise just to get you. This is not a person who's protecting you, who's honoring you, who's looking out. They're looking out only for themselves, and that's the trouble with idols. They demand worship with absolutely no regard for your welfare. The pursuit of money, power, sex will run you dry and ragged. It will leave you an empty shell of a human being, burnt out, washed up, having no shred of dignity or self-respect left. It will take everything from you, and in the end, it will gladly leave you penniless. Have you ever talked to anyone who devoted their whole life to that pursuit, came to the end and said, I found it regrettably so unsatisfying. It emptied me and gave me nothing in return. This is the nature of seduction. It seems like such a good idea at the time. But that promise it holds out will not deliver. There is only one who can deliver faithfully and consistently on the promises he makes. And that is the one who has sworn himself to you. God demands worship. He's not casual. He doesn't say, hey, do you feel like devoting your... He demands worship, but he does it on the tail end of having given you everything of himself. He has committed himself to you in as much as he asks you to commit yourself to him. No other God, small g, will ever do that. It will never offer a fair exchange. But with God alone, you worship a being who is obsessed with your benevolence and good fortune and well-being. He loves you beyond anything you or I could ever imagine. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the trouble with idols, is that at the moment you are so easily seduced to follow them. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Pastor Tim Keller from Redeemer Church in New York City, he defines idolatry this way. It's taking good things and making them into ultimate things. It is giving an unwarranted promotion to something in our lives that in its context could be a blessing, but when you make it something you worship, something upon which you pin your ultimate hopes and trust, you corrupt that very thing, and you make it something that will poison you, kill your soul. Idolatry is not a small thing. It is death to your soul. It is death to your relationship with God. But here's the good news. You can always come home. 
The yellow ribbon is a tradition that is surprisingly old. It dates perhaps back as far as before the emperor Nero around the time of Christ. They have found mosaic tile artwork from Pompeii buried under the ash of the volcanoes where yellow ribbons are tied around objects. And it has always been in those cultures a symbol of love that patiently waits. The yellow ribbon is a symbol of waiting love, of love that says, you don't know it yet, but this is really where you belong. You're going to come home and I'll wait. It's the love of the father in the story of the prodigal son. And it is the story of the love of God for us in all seasons of our lives. Listen to what Moses says to the people, as he gives this very devastating prophecy, at the end, he restores hope by saying this. But, you remember um, Dan's message, we're going to call it the big but. The word but is a hinge around which so many stories turn from bad to good, right? But, your rebellion, your adultery notwithstanding, from that place of being far from God, having betrayed him, wandered from him, given yourself to another, from that place, all hope is not lost. Because if from there you seek the Lord, you will find him. I know some of you have drifted. You've even shared it very honestly with me. I am not where I once was with the Lord. So many other things are more appealing, more important. Yeah, I come to church largely for my family, partly because of superstition. But I just don't feel anything like what I once felt when I think about God. And the worst part of it is you wonder if maybe what you went through when you were younger was just part of youth. You were brainwashed, caught up in the momentum of your culture. And you wonder, can I ever get back to the place Where when I thought about God, my heart was soft. Where I actually loved him. The good news is that wherever you are from there, you will find him if you seek him. Do you know that that's not a promise held out in every relationship? Let me ask you, how many of you, if you today cheat on your spouse, are guaranteed reconciliation how many of you know your marriage is in that place where if you left from church today had an affair that tomorrow your wife or your husband will look at you and say come home come home all is forgiven let's move forward probably fat chance for a lot of us that that's going to happen after you dodge the first couple bullets maybe you can start talking again But the truth is, in most relationships, you betray the other person this badly, there is no rebuilding that bridge. You have burned it. It's done. Game over. There is no going back. Some of you have lived through that experience, haven't you? And you know that I'm telling the truth. But in this relationship with God, the amazing news is, without fail and without exception, the promise is extended to everyone If from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. You're not bound and sentenced to remain in that place far from God where you've been wandering for a long time. 
And the reason is that our God is a merciful God. We may forget our promises, but God never forgets the promises he whispered to your heart when you had that first love for him. Here's an important thing to remember, though. It says that you will find him if you seek him with all your heart, with all your soul. A return to God is not a casual thing. If you say to me, I'm far from God, I feel like I've lost that loving feeling, don't expect that the road home will just be about, well, just keep coming to church, sitting there, listening. Maybe I'll give one really good sermon, and you'll be like, I felt electricity, and I'm back. It's not going to be that casual a thing any more than when you wander from your spouse. It'll be like, oh, you know, I'm stupid. It was an indiscretion. It was only sex. Can I just come home? It's not going to be that casual, is it? There is a mountain to climb in coming home. But if you will climb that mountain, you will reach the top. And maybe that's what's gone wrong for a lot of those in this room who feel far from God and have, have just been on a treadmill. You haven't been able to get back. It's because your return has been so casual, so passive. There's nothing of all your heart and all your soul. And so I want you to think about this illustration. And I know that not all of you are parents, but all of you can imagine this feeling. That you're responsible for a child you love, and that child is missing all of a sudden in the shopping mall or at Great America. Has that happened to any of you? Misplaced your kid in a public place? You don't have to raise your hand because everyone's going to call DCF on you. (laughs) But for most parents, we've had a good scare or two. It's a panicky feeling when you're in a large, crowded place and you go, where's that kid? Where? And, you, and normally you're kind of subdued. You don't like to make a scene. But there you are walking up and down the streets going, Noah! Noah! And you're screaming and everyone's like, oh, are you okay? Where's, what does your kid look like? They're scared for you because they see the crazy animal look in your eyes. When you've lost something that you love and you want to find it again, what do you do? Let's just go home. He, he knows our address. I'm sure some adult is going to find him. We'll get there eventually. What's the big deal? If not, we can always make more. You know, I mean, is that how casual you'd be about it? No way. I want you to imagine the animalistic, panicked, all-in engagement of a parent looking for a lost child. That begins to speak to the heart of the person who's far from God but knows that they want to come home. There's nothing casual about it. And if it's been casual for you, I'm going to tell you right now prophetically, you will wander for a long time more. We don't come home to God by sliding down a greased hill. We come back to him, looking for him with everything we've got. But the great news is that if you expend yourself on this quest, you will succeed. Because God is not playing hide and seek with us. He wants us to find him. One last observation this. He says, you won't actually start looking until you're in distress. And that's an interesting thing. We think that good times will draw us towards God. But quite the opposite, almost always it's pain, distress, that most urgently draws us back home to God. 
And I won't say much more on that except when you are far from God and you begin to experience pain and distress, don't let that experience make you more bitter against God. Understand this. This is the mercy of God. In that distress is built in a beckoning call back home to you. What God is doing by permitting that distress in your life is to say, do you realize that being far from me is not working for you? That to live outside of my provision and my protection does not yield the life that you have longed for. I have allowed this to visit you so that you will cry out for the God who once gave all of that shelter to you. Come home to me. Distress will do that far more effectively than luxury and comfort. And so when you are far from God, learn to pay attention to your distress. So often it is God's way of initiating the process of coming home. You know, we have this idea about life. That the reason we follow God is so that we could leave behind suffering and move ahead towards a good life. And I think in general... When we follow God, so many tangible blessings often follow. Isn't that true? When we follow God, a lot of good things do come upon our lives. We will learn to work more diligently. Along with that will come provision and promotion. A lot of blessings follow a pursuit of God. But if you look at your life and you measure its worth only by whether you're up or you're down, you will never fully understand this journey you're on. We don't make sense of life by saying, am I in a good time or a bad time? Because you cannot, you cannot see the full picture without understanding the main plot. And the main plot, as God sees it, is not whether your fortunes are good or bad, but whether through all of it, your heart is being drawn towards Him. The Apostle Paul had no ambiguity about this. Look at what he says. Oh, I don't have the verse for you. There it is. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And all I'm really trying to say here is that Paul had clarity on the real point of life. It's not whether your fortunes are up or down but whether in the process of your life's journey you are gaining Christ or losing Him. And if you can look at your life that way, then in the good times, in the good life, you will be on alert that you have not achieved everything that life is meant for, but that in the process of the good life, you've got to try even harder at remaining connected to God. And in the suffering and distress, be alert knowing that often that's an invitation for you to return to Christ. Throughout all the ups and downs, the same story, the central point, is that God wants you to have a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. That's the only story that has ever mattered. And so I'm inviting you, take off the lens through which you determine whether your life has been good or bad. Replace it with a lens that says, do I have Jesus Or am I losing him? That's the real story of our lives. I suspect some of you who are kind of, you know, perpetually frowny, 
you haven't been truly happy in a very, very long time. There have been a few laughs, a couple good days. But in general, if you're honest about it, for the last year or more, the, the general tone, the temperature of your life has been pretty flat. I think most people end up in that place because they're stuck in the wrong way of understanding life. I'm going to invite you to think again this week about whether your life story is drawing you nearer to Jesus or further from him. I think that's going to really change the picture for you. And I'm going to invite you with that thought. Bow with me in prayer. Let's make a response to God. I'm pretty sure that most of you going home today are not going to be tempted to see a piece of dead wood on the side of the road, pick it up, take out your whittling tools and make an idol, nail it to the mantle of your fireplace and start bowing down to it. I don't think that's the way idolatry looks in the year 2012 in the United States. But I know this, idolatry is as much a spiritual danger today as it ever has been. There are things in our lives that have either already taken too much hold or are threatening to do that. Good things which we are trying to turn into ultimate things. And I know that as you drift from God, those idols are going to seem more and more appealing and seductive. But I'm going to tell you the same thing I would tell to anybody who's thinking about cheating on their spouse. There's nothing for you there. There's nothing for you. The promise it holds out is great, but it will never deliver. I can guarantee you that. Because those things don't love you. They don't care what happens to you. But God has demonstrated his great love for you already in Jesus Christ. And when he demands worship, it is because he wants to fill your life. I'm going to invite you to pause and struggle through whether or not in your life there might be an idol that wants to rise up and take the place that God rightfully has in your life. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.